If I were to tell you that Vladimir Putin's son, I know he doesn't have a son, but go with me here, married one of the Obama daughters, do you think people would be upset? Do you think they would be concerned about his influence on our politics? Well, in 1796, a high-ranking British official married George Washington's granddaughter while he was president. Today, we'll be talking about Thomas Law, his life, and his children with Dr. Rosemary Zagari. This is Too Complicated for History. Our guest today is Rosemary Zagari, a university professor and historian at George Mason who specializes in early American politics, women in politics, and the like. Thanks so much for being here, Rosie. Oh, thrilled to be here. I'm especially excited because uh, Dr. Zagari was my PhD advisor at George Mason University. So um, it's great to see you again, Rosie, and definitely a a historical hero of mine. So really glad to have you here today. And now I'm on the hot seat instead of you. (laughs) (laughs) I know. (laughs) But you don't have any you don't have any degrees, at least um, pending this. It's just sharing your awesome knowledge. (laughs) Do people consider that like the lineage of who you learned from important when you're a historian? Like, uh, you know, if you're in school, like who was your advisor and their advisor and stuff? Do you keep track of all of those things? Uh, just, just that's inside baseball. But yes, my <laughs> advisor was uh, the eminent Yale historian Edmund S. Morgan, which makes Lynn a grandchild of Edmund S. Morgan. So you that's know. pretty cool. <laughs> that is pretty neat. Um, yeah, because I remember uh, Lynn had mentioned that that your advisor was Edmund Morgan. So it was. Uh, I was curious if that holds any weight, or if it's just sort of a cool like dinner table like conversation. Um, but we're here to talk about uh, a new area of the study for, of yours, Rosie, uh, a, a gentleman that I don't think many of our listeners have, probably have ever heard of, a man named Thomas Law. Uh, could you tell us a little bit about who he was? Okay, well, um, Thomas Law is known in a few historical circles, but I hope that my work will make him more widely known, and this is a great way to introduce him to the wider world. So Thomas Law was born in 1756 in Britain of a uh, clerical family. His father he was a was a philosopher at Cambridge and then an Anglican cleric and later became a bishop. So he was raised in this sort of upper class family, but he like a lot of men of his day uh was sort of knowledge rich, but money poor. And so he went off to the East India Company um, in 1773 to British India, Northern India, and uh, made a small fortune. And then later on came to the United States in 1794. But what's interesting about him is, first of all, that he is this sojourner across empires. Uh, you know, he was a resident and uh, an intellectual, a philosopher of the British Empire, the Mughal Empire in India, and the early American Empire. 
And he was really steeped in these enlightenment ideas about empire, about all human beings being equal, but also how to reform society to make societies better across the world and to apply sort of universal principles to make societies uh, improve and advance on the scale from savagery to civilization, as they would put it. Um, He's known in the United States primarily because he was uh, one of the earliest developers of Washington, D.C. Washington, as a lot of you may know, was did not exist as a city before it was founded as the national capital. And it was created by an act of Congress. And the U.S. government moved there in 1800. And um, he was he came with his fortune from British India and invested in this land. But as in India, where he was a sort of well-known reformer of the British East India Company, he became a reformer as well in the United States and tried to work against slavery, tried to um, devolve or encourage lawmakers to devolve property to Native Americans and to work for a variety of what he would call, what we would call benevolent causes. That doesn't mean he was just a good guy, though. (laughs) Um, You know, he always had his eye on doing well for himself, in other words, making a profit, as well as doing good. Um, So, and in the process, there was a lot of wreckage along the way, like his reforms in India were very controversial, uh, what he attempted to do in the United States. Uh, he drew in a lot of people uh, into his schemes for investing. And while he came out uh, barely uh, uh, holding his hat and not going bankrupt, a number of his partners did not uh, fare so well. So it's a, it's a story of sort of British empire, comparative empire building in Britain and and British India and the early American Republic. But it's also a family story because in India, uh, Thomas Law, like many other individuals at that time who uh, came over from from Britain to India, took a a native uh, indigenous woman, a, a mistress, a concubine or companion, the words are controversial, and uh, had three what we'd call mixed race sons with this woman. And what's very interesting about Thomas Law is that when he left India, he brought his three young sons who were all under 10 years of age with him first to Britain and then to the United States. And so um, if once he was in the United States, he actually uh, built on his sort of reputation and ambition and married into George Washington's family. So I like to say that um, this was George Washington's mixed race relatives. And, <laughs> um, and so one of one part of the story then is about how his mixed race children fared in the United States, how he negotiated life for them in the United States, and um, what it meant actually to be a Brit coming to the United States with a lot of assumptions about hierarchy and wealth and privilege and whiteness that uh, Mm -hmm. in some ways were similar 
to what existed in the United States, but in some ways were different. Wow. So <laughs> he's a fascinating very wide-ranging life. Yes, <laughs> um, yes. So, That's why it's taking me so long to write the book. So. <laughs> I can only imagine. Let's dive into some into, into the details of some of the stuff uh, a little bit, uh, if you don't mind. So before we get into sort of like the, the chronologically working through what, what he did in India versus before he came to the United States, something that stuck out to me when you were explaining like who he is in big picture, not many people um, equate empire building with equality like colonialism and 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 the belief in universal rights is there there seems to be a tension in my mind about that so did he have a way of marrying these two things just or, um, like, philosophically yeah that's a great question um he was steeped in these enlightenment thinkers like um adam smith and david hume and adam ferguson and Douglas Stewart and a bunch of other people that um, believed in the universality of humanity. That is that human beings were equal in whatever society they lived in. That is equal in the sense of having the mental capacity to achieve, having the moral capacity to achieve. Um, and so the goal of his kind of imperialism was to bring societies to that level. So it's that kind of equality rather than political equality that he was striving for. And he believed that, you know, by applying these universal laws of human nature, by applying these principles of, of, of Adam Smith's political economy, you could put a society on the path from, as I said before, savagery to civilization, gotcha. which is how he thought about what he was doing in British India with regard to the, the native peoples there. Right. So it's a little different than sort of like, I guess, like relative egalitarianism, where you're looking at civilizations and cultures as equal, as exactly. opposed to like, hey, you have these people are able, would be, they could be like England if they given the opportunity. Exactly. And um, what's intriguing but also frustrating about this view is that in some ways it is uh it's hard to use these terms but it, it was somewhat more open-minded i suppose you could say than what succeeded it say in british india and even in the united states with scientific racism and with a belief that some races are inherently inferior. Some peoples are inherently inferior to others. So this belief in a universal human nature is that basic level of equality that, that he believed in in the 18th century that was superseded in the 19th century by a much more hierarchical view of peoples and societies grounded in what we would call the pseudoscience of these racial beliefs. Yeah, it, would, it doesn't. It doesn't sound progressive to us, right. but but at the time, it it, it was a, a step in in a, in a more equal direction. It's right. I I'm curious. Um, when you say human nature, did this also include women? Were they specifying men? Did they believe that women were equal in mental capacity as the men? Ah. How was that? <laughs> uh, well. <laughs> it 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 did vary. And actually, a lot of these 18th century Enlightenment 
figures, including Thomas Law, did believe that women had uh, the potential to have um, mental equality, intellectual equality with men if they were given the right education. Now, is that the same as advocating an equality of roles and positions? No, no. But it was, um, again, different from what happened in the 19th century by the Victorian era, which sort of assumed that women were intellectually inferior to men, right. just the way, you know, the, the native peoples of India came to re, be regarded as as inherently inferior to the white peoples of, you know, of Britain and America, or, you know, the a- African-Americans or, or Indians came to be regarded in the 19th century as inherently inferior. So there's this moment in the 18th century, which I find fascinating, where there is this belief in uh, the, the universal potential of all people, mm-hmm. including women, with caveats. Of but, course. <laughs> uh, but, but there isn't a straight line of progress to right. greater equality. That is, there's a reshuffling of the hierarchies and by grounding assumptions about human beings in science, pseudoscience, as we'd say, that physical differences like skin color or uh, or gender, you know, make you more or less equal than the 19th century actually, actually in a certain sense, regressed. And so, I mean, again, I, I don't want to defend Thomas Law and these enlightened figures too much, but I do think it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a cautionary tale that, you know, progress doesn't always go in a straight line and that, you know, Absolutely. there can be regression as well as progression. And there was this moment of of hope and belief in equality that was eclipsed then. Yeah, not to get too deep into the, the philosoph- philosophical side of all of this, but that's <laughs> I, I've talked with Lynn before about this, and that's the inherent danger in like, you know, ideas like Descartian dualism, where it's like, hey, this person that cries like you, that walks like you, that talks like you isn't like you because there's something inherently different that you cannot see and you cannot and like the pseudoscience at least always felt to me as a search for physical proof of mm-hmm. that inherent difference that they were projecting on people absolutely right? there's they, they, they had a res, like a, an outcome that they wanted and they were trying to find reasons why it was true um yeah and and thomas law unlike um a lot of other 19th century brits i mean really did not believe that when Western religions were superior to, you know, the religions of British India or of, of Native huh. India. And wow. uh, yeah, so uh, he moved pretty far away from his father's Anglicanism, let's say. So so I guess what attracts me about him is he's an intellectual, not just uh, a sort of brute-fisted imperialist, but I think that's another reason why we have to be very careful when we think about him, because it's easy for me to get seduced by his ideas, but his actions also did have a lot of negative consequences. So we have to always, you know, play off the the the, the good that he was trying to do with the bad consequences that sometimes ensued. Absolutely. Yeah, I guess if if you if you hold him at least his mind in high esteem, it actually invites more criticism because you know for for, for those results, it's like you know, should have known better. Um, mm. But let's. Uh, I would love to know a little bit about some of those reforms or what he did in the the, uh, the East India Company when he was in 
And if I can, if I can interject, can you explain what exactly the East India Company did, and Uh, you know who was a part of it? Just what it is. Oh, the (laughs) the East India Company, the British East India Company was the biggest corporation in existence in the Western world at that time. It was originally chartered in 1600 by Queen Elizabeth, and it had a monopoly on all the trade with India and China and all the islands in between in in Asia. And so it was an enormously large, powerful, and sometimes very rich company. Um, a, a lot of members of parliament owned shares, stock in the company. So they had a vested interest in the company, but a lot of the taxes or customs duties that were collected on East India Company goods as they traversed the globe uh, were fed into the coffers of the British Empire and helped made, make the British Empire rich. And, um, you know, they dealt in things that were staples in, in Britain and in America, tea and textiles. Textiles, tea was from China, of course. Textiles were made, uh, you know, in, in volume in, in India before the Industrial Revolution. But spices, a lot of things that were just, you know, became, started out as luxury goods, but became essential goods for uh, the people in Anglo-America. And whenever the British East India Company was on the verge of failing, Parliament bailed it out because it was said it was too big to fail. <laughs> oh. So um, history know? just keeps repeating itself, doesn't it? it? It's so modern. It absolutely does. <laughs> oh, but um, I think that's an important background to understanding Thomas Law's significance because, um, you know, he was joining up with this this uh, behemoth company that had its own private army, by the way, um, and had conquered large swaths of territory in northern India, including the most lucrative parts, Bengal, as it was called, which includes what what we know as uh, well, what was known as uh, Calcutta, Calcutta today, and. Um, you know, what the British wanted to do was monetize their conquests. So basically what they did was take over from the native rulers, the Mughals, who had been a couple of centuries before invaders themselves, but who had um, a very elaborate system of, of taxation by which they extracted wealth from the peoples who lived in, in India. And um, the British, you know, were not being very successful. Their their big victories in India, in northern India at least, uh, other parts of India came later, but in northern India came actually as as Britain was fighting um, the French and Indian War on the North American continent. So their big victory at what was called Plassey uh, occurred in 1757. They got the French out who had been aiding the uh, native, um, you know, Devons, as they were called, or Mughals. And um, they took over the tax-collecting privileges in northern India. But the problem was, um, I mean, there were millions of people in northern India, and there were a couple of 
hundred British uh, East India Company employees. So how do you collect taxes uh, efficiently and profitably from these people? And several different taxation regimes were tried without much success or with limited success. And this was a big problem. And I should notice, note coincidentally that this at, at the very same moment, the 1760s and 70s, that the taxation issue is coming to the fore in British North America. Mm-hmm. So, right. so a fact that people often overlook is that at the very same time that London was trying to deal with um, the taxation issue in the North American British colonies, that the British East India Company and their overseers, the British government, were trying to resolve the taxation question in British India. And I find that correspondence that we don't, the connection there, amazing. It's a connection we don't often draw. And I think that thinking about it from the the imperial point of view, not just from the point of view of what's happening in America, gives you a broader scope or broader sense of what's going on. So that's a long introduction to (laughs) what did Thomas Law do there? Well, um, he was part of this series of, of reformers, and he wasn't by any means the only one, but who was proposing a new system of taxation and um, his proposal, and again, this wasn't just his alone, but to fix the tax, that is to fix a certain rate for the tax and to make it permanent. But where Thomas Law was different was he he became a district administrator. He oversaw a district called Bihar in in the north central part of, of the Indian subcontinent. And he actually attempted to implement on a small scale this new system of taxation. But what he insisted, and again, he wasn't alone in this, but what he insisted was that um, land had to be devolved to a certain class of individuals as private property in order for the taxes to be adequately collected. And so his plan got a lot of attention and eventually it was adopted and in 1793 came to be known as, and, and Cornwallis is, was his supervisor and he was the one most associated with it who promoted it and it became known as the permanent settlement. What's fascinating here too is another connection. I mentioned the name Lord Cornwallis. That might ring some bells with some of the listeners because they might know that Cornwallis was uh, a very important British general during the American Revolution. And uh, he was actually an infamous general on the British side because he was defeated ignominiously at the Battle of Yorktown in 1781. And uh, that was one of, well, the last major battle of the American Revolution. Now, you might think after such a big loss, he would have just you know, retreated to England with his tail between his legs and never be heard of again. But Cornwallis was very savvy and very well (laughs) politically connected. And uh, somehow he was forgiven for all that. And um, (laughs) he wound up in India, where he actually became known as a very great 
reformer and uh, reformer of the British East India Company. He wanted to root out corruption in the East India Company. He conquered a lot of territory in India. So he was more successful militarily there than in the United States. He signed off on this proposal. And again, I want to emphasize, it wasn't just Thomas Law's proposal. There was a guy named John Shore who was extremely instrumental in uh, promoting it. But Thomas Law was the one who sort of tried it out and promoted it. And it became known as the permanent settlement. So it established a permanent rate of taxation in perpetuity, at least theoretically, in Northern India and devolved private property to a whole class of individuals. It basically, what had been customary land ownership became sort of de facto land ownership due to this British decree. Mm -hmm. So it's it's rather, I mean, in terms of imperial uh, majesty, that is a pretty impressive one and something that, of course, absolutely did not have to be done in the United States. Well, what became the United States in British North America, because you know, the whole the whole basis of the colonies in North America was the division of private property. So very different imperial settings, but this whole focus on taxation, on imperial governance, on centralization was common in the 1760s and 70s. And this very interesting connection between Cornwallis in both places. And if I just might add here, I was giving a talk about this at... Um, at Ohio State University, and um, a woman who had been born in India came up to me afterward, and she said, I had no idea Cornwallis had a career in North America before he came to Britain. And and just as I said, well, I had no idea Cornwallis had a career in British India after the United States. So That's very funny. So Thomas Law kind of bridges these gaps or bridges these continents and shows us how interconnected this 18th century world was uh, under the auspices of the British Empire. Now, when you say that he wanted to devolve private property or basically formalize ownership under basically native Indians there, was it those those would still be like landowning classes of people there, but it just was not. British, is that is that is that uh, my understanding that correctly, or is it? It's not like a, um, you know, we're just going to divvy it amongst the people. Like the village now belongs to everybody, and everyone gets like a little lot. Right? Is it is it sort of like a? Uh, I'm just curious as to actually the function of it. I understand how it relates, how it would in theory relate to taxes. Yeah, yeah. Oh, this is so complicated, and if, <laughs> well, um, we don't have to necessarily get into it if, we, well, if, it's, if it's too just, much. Let me put it. Most simply, land ownership in in uh, these this native society was was customary, and it wasn't uh, by a sort of written deed. And there were customary groupings of people. We might call them classes. Some, you know, worked the land and were mostly what we would call peasants. Others were primarily tax collectors. But there were many layers in between. And what is breathtaking about what Cornwallis um, and Thomas Law did here is that they just pulled out that class of traditional tax collectors and say, you actually own the land in the sense of, you know, a Western conception of private property. 
Right. Okay. Right. Yeah, that's, right. that's pretty reasonable. <laughs> I guess the takeaway there is that the sort of the caste and, and uh, social structures of India are very complicated. <laughs> very complicated. But again, I think the idea of, of, you know, taxing to produce revenue is a common thread here across right. the empire. Absolutely. If, if it's okay, I kind of like to jump into some of the personal things that you talked about, about Thomas Law. Um, I'm really interested in his concubine, uh, mistress. I'm not sure what term to use. Um, His partner. How about that? Partner, Um, companion. His lady friend. Yes, his lady friend. And I think the thing that's most interesting to me is we don't even know her name. Is that correct? And she sort of just lost, lost to history. And that this wasn't an isolated incident that a lot of the European men who were going to India, there weren't European women. So they ended up coupling with, you know, native women. And, you know, how did this, how did this work? These women just kind of disappeared when they left. Yeah. Okay. So um, the native term is BB or it's B-I-B-I. Um, That's so companion is probably the most, our partner is the most neutral term. Um, But yes, so what's fascinating is that there were the the number of of European women in in India at this time was minuscule. I mean, I've read ratios of one white woman to 12 white men, you know. Um, So it was customary, again, although not not officially sanctioned, that these officials would take a a companion. Sometimes it was their housekeeper. Sometimes it was someone they met in another way. They would form a marriage-like relationship with them. And again, we know that um, French fur traders did this, for example. Um, British did it too, but it's less common um, in North America, but the French definitely did this in North America and formed households and had children. And what's interesting about these British East India Company uh, employees and also the the soldiers who were there who did this is um, that, you know, they did have these children and the question is what to do about the children. And well, let me say what Thomas Law didn't do, which is just abandon his children as many of the other um, men did at this time. They, when their time in India was up, they left and they left their companion and their children and probably had no more contact with them. We do know that there were smaller numbers, mostly in the higher ranks of the of the officer corps or of the British East India Company, who did try to provide for their um, their native families. So sometimes they left pensions for these their families or the women when they left. Um, a smaller number might send their sons or daughters to England to be educated during the 1780s. And then, especially for the the men, the young men, the mixed race children, they would come back and they would be employed by the British East India Company and they would actively, actually be quite effective as sort of 
intermediaries between the native population and the British East India Company. But what is very interesting is that right at the time Thomas Law was there, right at the and because Cornwallis came in 1786, Cornwallis actually started tightening and um, restricting the possibilities of these mixed race children to serve in the British East India Company and to serve in the official uh, British East India Company Army. <clears throat> there could be separate ranks of native troops, but they couldn't serve the British East India Company Army. And similarly, they could be unofficially related to the um, East India Company, but they could no longer serve, be hired by the East India Company. So at the same time that Thomas Law had these children, they were young children. And then in 1791, Thomas Law actually got very sick and his children were, as I say, under 10 years old. He was told to leave India for his health. And he actually brought his children with him back to Britain and then ultimately to the United States. Now, this wasn't unheard of. And part of what uh, British historians are telling us now is that, you know, there were many more people of color in Britain in the 18th century than we've ever realized. And you would especially notice them in a place like London. And there was even a sort of a abandoned child problem, both in Calcutta and in London at this time. But um, there were smaller numbers of these mixed race children who actually um, married into uh, British society. This was true, especially of light skinned mixed race young women. And then the boys had a harder time once the ranks of the East India Company in Calcutta closed up to them. And so I think what Thomas Law was responding to is the fact that he, you know, the children had no future as he saw it in India. Now, if you notice, I haven't talked much about the mother, the, the, the wife. And we do know that Thomas Law did leave a pension for her. Um, but in all the letters I've read of his, and I have read thousands, I can assure you, <laughs> Uh, he only refers to her by a few times <clears throat> and never by name. He refers to her as a woman or the mother of my children. And this is part of what we think about or what historians talk about when they talk about the erasure of Native women in the imperial setting. And one of the things, another of the things that Thomas Law did and some other of these especially high-ranking East India Company officials did, was baptize their children. And so um, they were baptized, and their names are recorded at St. John's Church in Calcutta. And that's a way for Thomas Law to claim patriarchy, to claim his patriarchal uh, claim on them. And when he took them with him, you know, obviously, <laughs> I mean, he took them away from their mother forever with not much thought of that. <laughs> but I suppose the thought was he could give them a better life or something. But, you know, it must have been wrenching. It must have been terrible. And, you know, it, it was a very hard life from what we know for the women who were left behind. Um, so, you know, that's all we know about her. 
Um, but we do have these sort of shards of information that give us tantalizing clues. So sorry for the interruption, but we're going to take a brief break now for a word from our sponsors. That's so when I first heard about this whole scenario and Thomas Law from you sort of in passing and tangential to another conversation we were having, I got pretty excited, uh, mostly because like I'm half Indian. Oh, and, yeah. and it's we and it's interesting for me to be able to sort of project sort of like my ethnic history all the way back to like the because the, otherwise it's not you don't hear about those folks around so for me to be like oh there's a couple of half white half indian kids running around in you know early dc <laughs> involved in their fathers involved in all of this stuff was actually like a really intriguing thing for me to learn about why there's some sort of emotional attachment to that i'm not 100 percent certain that's something i need to sort of like tease out within <laughs> myself <laughs> but it was intriguing nonetheless um <laughs> but um i was curious if but actually, the baptism thing also made me really f- actually kind of funny because my father's mother, we believe, baptized me and my sister in secret. Just because oh. you know, <laughs> Irish Catholic, you know, wanted to make sure she was covering all the bases. <laughs> <laughs> but um, anyway, well, not to air too much family history. But, but this, is a, this is also a very interesting thing about the baptism because um, and and Thomas Law taking the children because it's such a contrast with American slavery where, you know, we know there was widespread, um, there were widespread sexual relationships between white males and, and, and the female slaves on these plantations, even if it was officially forbidden, but um, they almost never recorded the children as being, you know, the children of the white master. We do have, you know, most notably with, you know, Sally Hemings and Thomas Jefferson, glimpses of masters freeing their children, but that was the exception rather than the rule. And um, not until the 19th century did large numbers of of African-Americans even start to get baptized. So it's a very different situation. And I think it just reflects the difference in the patriarchal norms, the importance of the male line in Mm -hmm. um, British, the British tradition there. Yeah, that's interesting. And it's almost like what you said, a lot of those lighter skinned women that were that came or, you know, mixed women that were growing up in England were able to marry into certain families and stuff. And that goes to show you like a lot of like the, at least the societal divisions were based a lot on, you know, physical differences between because if you're talking about just sort of like typical i forget what the actual words are phenotypical sort of representations Mm -hmm. of the way you know facial structure and stuff like that indians tend to be pretty closer to english english peoples they would look more similar yes uh you know the kids of mixed race kids would look more similar to the so like by the time you get like two generations out you might not be able to tell the difference right uh, like just to the you know naked eye so how but, did those kids? But, but acculturation yeah. was also very important. I mean that that idea of you know when the the mixed race kids were sent to England, they were uh, you know acculturated, assimilated into middle or upper class English society. They got an mm-hmm. education, and so they acted quote unquote white British, or yeah. British. Yeah, yeah. That's uh, it's 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 funny. You can actually still hear in Indian accents today the British influence 
uh, on upper, like, you know, you can tell sort of like where someone is a little bit in India by listening to their accent and how close it sounds to a British accent. It's a first further way. Anyway, it, it still, still, still trickles down today. Um, yeah. No, it does. It's, yeah. it's fascinating. I think you had mentioned uh, early on about, you know, Thomas Law and this idea of equality and that he was, if not an outright abolitionist, he would, did not support slavery. And he comes to you know, the American colonies with his three mixed race children. And he marries a very large slave owner in Eliza Custis, who is also the granddaughter, a step granddaughter of George Washington. So how in the world did the two of them end up together and deal with these children? I mean, was she a good mother or, you know, how did she feel about this? Okay. So, uh, Eliza Custis adored the boys, and she told them from the beginning that she wanted to be called mother, that she considered herself their mother. Mm -hmm. But I think in her mind, they she made this radical distinction between these mixed race kids born of a British aristocrat and her enslaved people. And she had anywhere from eventually 60 to 100 that she inherited through her father's estate. So I think that um, I think it's part of this, the the games that people are able to play with race and um, classification and uh, how much it, it is based on, you know, the associations with class. But she she wanted to be their mother and she considered herself their mother. Until, until the marriage went south and <laughs> yes. they separated and eventually got divorced. But yeah. it was very heart-wrenching for her, actually. I think she was genu- genuinely attached to, to the boys. Um, did, did they have any children together themselves? Um, Eliza Custis and Thomas Law, who married in uh, 1796, about two years after uh, Thomas Law came to the United States, had one daughter. Uh, also named Eliza, confusingly. Um, and yes, she was doted on and um, pampered and privileged. And uh, yeah, so they had the one daughter. Was there any worry about this British aristocrat marrying into basically, I mean, the president's family? Like, yeah, <laughs> was that because there's also an age difference between the two of them. Like, I imagine like internally, like the family, it might not have been the smoothest sort of like, hey, by the way, look, meet my boyfriend. We're Eliza was pretty young, right? wasn't she? Yeah. OK, so there was about a 20 years year age difference. Um, Eliza was about 20 and he was 39. Um, Thomas Law was 39 when they married. You know, she was a very difficult person, Eliza was. <laughs> she, um, you know, her father died when she was very young. Actually, he died. The father of Eliza Custis died because he insisted on going to Yorktown uh, during the battle, even though he wasn't a soldier, and he got camp fever, and he died. Um, so Eliza was very young, and spent a lot of time with George and Martha Washington uh, as she was growing up. She um, went, she sort of demanded, like she was bored to tears on her stepfather's plantation in Maryland. 
And um, she demanded that she be allowed to go to Philadelphia during Washington's presidency. And that's where she met Thomas Law, probably at one of Martha Washington's you know, weekly salons or something like that. And I think she was just captivated by him. You know, Eliza was very intelligent, uh, well-educated, but moody and difficult. And I think she just saw this, um, you know, just well-traveled, well-educated man who was very interested in her for whatever reasons. And you know, they married maybe less than a year after they met. The family was not thrilled, but uh, Martha Martha actually probably was thrilled. The grandma was thrilled, Martha Washington. <laughs> um, um, you know, I think that her stepfather was worried about the two, the, the children, the mixed race children and, mm-hmm. you know, becoming a mother immediately. I yeah. think some observers were worried about uh, Thomas Law's loyalties, actually. Yeah, you right. Know? Right. A political question um, there. And there are these uh, occasional letters reassuring Washington. He is a good Republican, you know, Republican in the small R sense, like committed to the United States. And, you know, I think that there was concern that, you know, would he take her back to England and leave so, and was he a fortune hunter? I mean, I think that's the the bottom line. Was he a fortune hunter? Um, so all these things were good questions, but I think he saw a strategic advantage in marrying um, Eliza, but I, he always comments on how pretty she was. <laughs> and I think he was taken with her beauty and initially her intelligence, um, but she did prove to be extremely difficult in the marriage. And ultimately, that led to their separation in 1804. But I still didn't get to the point about slavery. And so Thomas Law was opposed to slavery mm-hmm. um, and did, did not believe in the institution. However, at various points, he did own slaves. Now, he, he Did he purchase them, them or was um, how did he, he acquire he, them? purchased some of them from Eliza, actually, for minimal oh. amounts of money and actually freed a number of them. Oh, okay. Um, members of the Costin family. He purchased others that he kept as what would we would have been has been called term slaves. That is, they were kept for a certain number of years with the pr- the promise of freedom. But none, so you could say it was kind of indentured servitude. He certainly, that's how he rationalized it to himself. But, you know, it's, I wouldn't, to call him an abolitionist, you have to put like a big asterisk next to the term. Um, (laughs) Absolutely. Yeah. It's hard to say when you're acquiring people. Yeah. You're doing both those things. Um, He did have actually a plan that he tried to get uh, Eliza, his wife, to support where he could use some of her, of the land from the family uh, to transition some slaves to freedom, but it never got off the ground. But it was a, a plan that he had, um, along with later plans that he actually tried to propose to in the 18-teens and 20s 
to the leaders of Washington, D.C., the political leaders, including John C. Calhoun. Um, and, and uh, you know, he was he was good friends with Henry Clay. He was good friends with Thomas Jefferson. He peddled this plan for gradual abolition that resembles in some ways what the British actually wound up doing in the Caribbean and Jamaica, sort of compensated manumission. But as you can imagine, this Brit trying to peddle this plan for compensated manumission did not get very far in the United States. So he was well-intentioned, I suppose, and did have this principled opposition to slavery, but as I say, with an asterisk. What happened to his sons? So, you know, we're talking about what he's doing. Um, were the sons educated? Were they successful? The the, the mixed-race sons? Yes. How did they do yes. in the okay, U.S.? So- so one of the sons, the middle son, actually died within two years of coming to the United States as a young boy. So that was very mm. sad. But um, one of them, the eldest, John Law, attended Harvard College and then uh, read law, as they call it, in Baltimore and became an attorney. And he was actually a very successful attorney in Washington, D.C. in the early first decades of the of the 19th century. And one of the things, and he did what normal lawyers do, you know, a lot of land transactions and wills and deeds. And he took care of a lot of his father's business, though, too. And he was, Thomas Law was always involved in a lot of lawsuits. And, uh, <laughs> and hmm. so um, that was a big part of his job. But he was sort of well-known and well-respected in the Washington community. He actually married uh, a white woman and had two children with her. But one of the most remarkable things that I don't think is an accident is that he was very active in the 18-teens in uh, suing for freedom for Black people, enslaved people who either claimed to have a white mother or who claimed that their master had deeded them to freedom and were trying to prove it. And so he was the attorney of record on a lot of these lawsuits, which I find very uh, remarkable. And in some sense, maybe I'm overreading it, but in some sense, a sort of, you know, sort of, um, alliance of these people of color, even though I don't think he necessarily identified like that. But I think, you know, he he identified with the desire to remove them from, you know, their their shackles of oppression. Yeah, whether I mean, not to project too much, but whether or not how no matter how he identified, you never really lose the sense of other in that situation so there's at least uh, that's some a, that's a good way to put it yes yeah. that's a good way to put it like yes. even yeah even though you're not you know in the, the the most oppressed group of folks you still are not a member a full member of the other one yes <laughs> so yes yes uh, so i think that um now unfortunately he died when he was under 40 at uh, um in 1822 and so we don't really know. He was actually also very active in uh, Washington, D.C. politics, uh, served on the, the council. Uh, what was his name? 
We have, oh, we have mentioned it. John, John Law. John, John Law. Law. John okay. Law. I mean, it's, you know, not memorable names, unfortunately. <laughs> so, and he was um, a lawyer. I mean, yes, it fits. Was, yeah, right, right, right. <laughs> Believe me, when you're doing Google searches like that, it's you get a lot of stuff you don't want. Um, the other son, Edmund Law, actually um, stayed in Britain because he was very young. He was probably six or seven when he came to Britain. And Thomas Law kept him, or his sister, who was a wealthy Lady Rumbold, uh, took him in and reared him for almost 10 years in, in Britain. So he didn't come back. He didn't come to the United States until he was almost 17 years old and really had had a sort of upper class education in England. And then, but once he was here, unfortunately, it was in the middle of Thomas and Eliza separating but Thomas sent him off to Yale. And so he graduated from Yale and he had an even harder time, I think, adapting, losing that sense of, of what you call otherness, you know, than his older brother did since he came when he was older. And he had a hard time figuring out what he wanted to do. He said, oh, I want to be a, a lawyer like my older brother. And Thomas said, no, no, one lawyer in the family is enough. And <laughs> um, then, uh, you know, he did a lot of Thomas Law's commercial business, property business. He attempted to, um, you know, found businesses in, in D.C., but none of them was very successful. His greatest success, though, was and he, he was very conscious that he didn't want to be a burden on his father, though, that's it's a very poignant, kind of sad relationship, I think. But he finally found some success in the 1820s. He went down to Florida and was actually a commissioner um, once the United States attained, obtained Florida and was sort of a commissioner of the claims and sort of processing uh, a territorial administrator down there. But then after John Law died in 1822. His father needed him and more or less demanded that he come back to uh, Washington, which John, which uh, Edmund Law, the youngest one, did. And he did dealt with that for a time. And then his father went to England in 1825. And when Thomas Law came back, this is, you know, Thomas Law came back uh, after his 1825 visit to England. Um, he found that Edmund Law, his son, had had a child out of wedlock with a young woman in Washington, D.C. And um, he was not happy about this. <laughs> and uh. Ed, Ed, Edmund wanted to marry the woman. And um, that would have been the right thing to do. But Thomas Law said, you have no profession. You have no means of support. You cannot marry her. And again, that's this. Sounds like my mom. <laughs> <laughs> this strong, strong parental figure, you know, decreeing what his child could do. And uh, he found something for Edmund to do, and he sent him off on a voyage to Mexico with a commander porter and was a sort of um, aide uh, assistant to this, this commander, a commercial assistant on this voyage to Mexico. And then he eventually came back in 1827 or so 
very sort of, I don't know, alienated from his father, but they patch things up. But then uh, he seems to have gotten sick and he also died sort of prematurely as a, you know, younger man, young middle-aged man. So he died in 1829. And so both predeceased Thomas Law, who died in 1834. So the promise of these mixed race children had been partially achieved. And that Thomas Law always says one said one of the reasons he came to the United States was because he thought his natural children, that's what they called illegitimate children at that yeah. time, natural children, <laughs> um, would have a better chance at life. And they did get excellent educations. And it seems that socially there were not, you know, high barriers to their participation in Washington society, partly because of their, you know, education and and British background and their father's high social status. But, you know, their premature deaths just caught cut off, you know, the the ending of the story. The so legacy we don't, there, yeah. Yeah, we don't really know. And and even Eliza, his daughter with Eliza Custis, she died at a very young age. Jeez. Um, she had four children, but she died at like age like 24. 18th and 19th century people keep doing that. Yeah. Like, oh, yeah. Like, <laughs> I just can't yeah. seem to stay alive. So, so I'm curious, did Edmund ever get married? Because obviously he wanted to marry this other woman, was forbidden. And who knows what happened to that poor woman and her child? Oh, well, we actually know something about it. We what do. It. Yes. Okay. What happened to <laughs> it? No, they, they, were not, they were not allowed to marry. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I find that kind of hilarious because it's like, you know, it's like, how could you have a child out of wedlock? He's like, where did you learn this from you, dad? I know. Come on on now. (laughs) Absolutely. Absolutely. Do do as I say, not as I do. But um, what's fascinating is that when Thomas Law died in 1834, he had a very explicit will. Okay, and so just to give you a little bit more background on him, I mean, he bought up some of the prime properties in Washington, D.C. in 1794, you know, before the government come there. And he was one of the prime movers in trying to make Washington into a sort of thriving capital city. And on the original L'Enfant plan for the city, there was a canal that was supposed to go from the Potomac River up to the Capitol along what is now Constitution uh, Constitution Avenue in D.C., and then cut down Capitol Hill to what we know as the Anacostia River, but was called the Eastern Branch there. And the purpose of this canal was to bring goods to the city and to you know make it easier to load and unload, to provide, uh, you know, a more thriving commerce, uh, to make it just easier to get from place to place. But the government wouldn't fund this. And Thomas Law and a, a small group of other uh, early Washington, D.C. De- businessmen, property owners, were actually totally instrumental in getting the funds to build this canal. And so, I mean, I, t- I tell my family this every time we go down Constitution <laughs> Avenue, but there's a lock house at Constitution Avenue and 17th Street, right, kitty corner from the White House grounds, 
like within sight of the Washington Monument. And there was a canal there. And that was the lock house where the lock was. And um, yes, it was all filled in. It became a big sewer and was filled in in, <laughs> in the late 19th century. But for our time, there was a canal there. So Thomas Law was very instrumental in that, in promoting businesses. He envisioned Washington, D.C. as the center of trade, as did Washington himself. George Washington saw Washington, D.C. as both, you know, a, a place where goods from abroad would be brought in and then it would be a, an entrepot for goods from the interior to be brought and shipped abroad. So, you know, that this canal, the CNO Canal, was a separate canal that actually joined with the Washington Canal at that oh, lock house. Wow. <laughs> so, That's so cool. <laughs> so he was a big promoter of, of Washington, D.C., and he never really was able to see his dreams realized to their fullest. Um, he his land was mostly on Capitol Hill and down to the Anacostia River, especially along New Jersey Avenue. And to his chagrin, the development that occurred in the early 19th century actually went westward toward the president's house, toward the White House and Georgetown more than from the Capitol down to the Anacostia. So he was left holding the bag with a lot of property that was for a long time not very valuable. And so he was always on the edge of bankruptcy. But what I like to emphasize is that many, many early developers in Washington, D.C. went bankrupt. And by hook or crook and a lot of lawsuits, (laughs) He did not go bankrupt. He kept his head above water even after the divorce from Eliza Custis. He actually won a a huge lawsuit in 1815 that helped keep him afloat. And, um, you know, things were stabilizing after the canal opened. The canal also opened in 1815. You know, the big victory was after the War of 1812 when Washington, Washington, D.C. was burned. He and this other group of businessmen kept kept the capital at Washington, and there were had been strong pressure to move it away. But in a way, Washington came back stronger than ever after the War of eighteen twelve. And so, for a time, it seemed like you know Thomas Law's dreams of this great national capital were going to be realized. Um, which is just a long way of going back to I was talking about. Edmund Law and Thomas Law's will. So um, by the time that Thomas Law died, you know, his daughter with Eliza had died, his his sons, his mixed race sons had died. So all he had left were grandchildren. So his grandchildren from uh, Eliza, who were living in Baltimore. And since his sons were dead, he had three grandsons, the, the two from the eldest son, John Law, and this one illegitimate child from Edmund. He left the, the sons, the, the grandchildren of the mixed race uh, relationship, uh, a certain amount of money. Okay. But Eliza's children had received a lot of property due to his marriage settlement and, excuse me, the divorce settlement with her. Uh, 
So they had received a lot of property. So he didn't leave them anything else. And he said, if they contest this contest that has challenged this will, you know, I'm going to cut off even more from them. Well, they they were greedy (laughs) and they did contest the will, but it went all the way to the Supreme Court. And that's why we know that Edmund Law's illegitimate son did actually get finally, after 20 years after Thomas Law died, his bequest from his grandfather. Oh, wow. So it was a... incredible court case. And in the, in the course of reading the court case, you see by this time, Washington property was appreciating and these heirs of Eliza Custis and of little Eliza, their mother, were extremely wealthy, extremely wealthy because the, the property that Thomas Law had, had bought was now appreciating in value. And one thing I also like to, um, you know, like in imagining this time, there was a hotel on New Jersey Avenue and C Street uh, right down from the Capitol where there's now a, a, a house office building. And it was called the Varnum Hotel. And it was just the place to stay in Washington, D.C. And one of, of Eliza Custis's uh, grandchildren got that. And huh. so... Wow. It had it was originally one of Thomas Law's houses, but it was a fabulous place. So so his legacy lived on um for a while and uh e- even though, you know, his his natural children did not, but his his grandchildren did survive and some of them thrived. I will say that the children through Eliza became Confederates in the Civil War, whereas the illegitimate child by Edmund became a a soldier in the Union Army. I don't know what that means. Brother against brother, right? I don't know. Read into that what you will, audience. (laughs) (laughs) But that's a remarkable life. Uh, I mean, I know we've really also sort of like sort of skimmed over the top of the surface and I'm, you know, incredibly oh, excited no. well, to see, see your just, work, your book. It's amazing that, you know, this guy just sort of floated beneath the surface. There is a park now, um, a park down by the National Stadium that was built where part of the canal ran. And there is a, a signage there that talks about Thomas Law. But other than that, his contribution to DC has been kind of forgotten. But again, I would say what's important about his story is not just what he did for DC, but sort of the larger symbolism of the connections between Britain and the United States and the ideas about race and the ideas about empire and the connections that existed that are right below the surface that we haven't even begun to scratch. And so that's really what I'm trying to do with this project. Well, and, and hopefully when it comes out, you know, more interest will be, um, you know, accrued and on Thomas Law and maybe his story will be more understood by the general public. Well, that's certainly always our goal, isn't it? Yes. Well, <laughs> I, once I finish it, I'm going to actually begin a campaign to have a street named after Thomas Law. So. Oh. Oh, sweet. <laughs> so send us the petition. I'll sign yes. it. 
<laughs> I'll sign it. Absolutely. Well, thank you, Rosie, so much for 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 being with us. I think uh, uh, I mean you're a tour de force, uh, and and uh, I every contribution you make to you know the academic history is, is is a remarkable one. I can't really can't wait to hear about this or, or read this book for you know both personal reasons, but just in even just being a history nerd. Yeah, pretty excited about it. <laughs> history nerds <laughs> unite. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much for talking to me and good luck with all this. Thank you. And is there any, um, do you want to talk about any of your previous books or anything that you'd like the audience to know about? Uh, They can Google me if they want. (laughs) (laughs) You heard that audience. Google Rosemary Zagari. We'll 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 post some links on on our Twitter (laughs) to to give you guys a a starting point. (laughs) Thanks so much, Rosie. Okay. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to the full episode of Too Complicated for History. We hope you enjoyed the episode, and if you did, please leave us a review on Odyssey, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Be sure to follow us on our social media platforms at 2C4H underscore podcast, or check out the link in the description. This will keep you in the loop for show updates, new episodes, and exclusive content. Join us for our next episode with our guest, Dr. Cassandra Good. She'll be talking about friendships in the founding era. Too Complicated for History is a podcast from Primary Source Media. Produced by Patrick Long and Lynn Price Robbins. Edited and mixed by Curtis Fritsch. Opening theme music by Sheena Biratella. <laughs>